Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of patients with liver cancer with Dr. Ariel Jaffe. Dr. Jaffe is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of digestive diseases at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Ariel, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what exactly you do. Sure. So um, basically, I specialize in the care of patients that have advanced liver disease, um, and I work both in the transplant program, so patients who need to go on uh, to have a liver transplant, and I also manage patients that develop liver cancer, which is an extremely common complication um, in patients that have chronic liver disease. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. So when you're talking about patients who require transplant, what kinds of conditions require liver transplant? I mean, are these patients who have hepatitis, cirrhosis? Tell us a little bit more about what kinds of conditions will lead you down the path of transplant. Sure. So, you know, most commonly patients that develop end-stage liver disease, which is you know, what we commonly know as cirrhosis um, are the ones that we do evaluate for liver transplant. And that can be from a variety of different causes. So some which you alluded to, you know, patients that have chronic viral disease, um, certain toxins like alcohol use, certain genetic disorders, um, patients with obesity and diabetes, which can lead to fatty liver and, you know, go on to develop end-stage liver disease. Once you start to have complications from that, we generally start to consider you for transplant. There are a subset of patients who may actually have really well-preserved liver function and look and feel well, but in patients that develop liver cancer, which sort of, as I mentioned, is an extremely common complication, you know, 8 to 10% of patients with cirrhosis will develop cancer each year. Um, that's another indication in which we go on to consider them for transplant because you know, transplant will not only cure the cancer, but it will actually cure their underlying liver disease, which is the major risk factor for their cancer development. So tell us a little bit more about that. In terms of cancer, um, do all patients with liver cancer, are all patients candidates for transplant? Or is it only those who have that underlying chronic liver disease that would make them potentially a candidate anyways? So not all patients are candidates for transplant. Um, the majority of patients who develop liver cancer will have some form of chronic liver disease. But interestingly, we're actually seeing a unique population who don't have underlying advanced liver disease go on to develop liver cancer. And it's a little bit of a controversial field if those patients you know, should be considered for transplant or not. Um, but in terms of those that you know, may have chronic liver disease and develop liver cancer, there are certain criteria that need to be met for patients to be considered for transplant. And some of that includes, you know, how extensive their liver cancer is. So for example, if it's spread outside of the liver, they would not be good candidates for transplant. Or if they have a large amount of tumors within the liver, um, also they would not be considered good candidates. We also sometimes like to look at patients if they have recurrent cancer, 
um, you know, we're more likely to consider them for transplant or if their underlying liver is really uh, very, very sick so that they have other complications of liver disease in addition to cancer, then, you know, again, we're more likely to want to pursue transplant in those patients. So one of the things that that people might be thinking about when we think about transplant is that, um, you know, oftentimes people may be under the impression that patients who have cancers, for example, um, may not be uh, potential uh, recipients of, uh, of organs. But it sounds like for liver cancer, that's not the case, that if you have liver cancer, uh, even if it's recurrent liver cancer, uh, you can still be on the, the uh, organ uh, recipient list. Is that right? Yes. So it's actually, it's a really unique cancer and you're very spot on with that. And that actually transplant is considered one of the curative therapies. And again, you know, it can't have, it it really can't have spread outside of the liver or you can't have such an extensive tumor burden, but, um, because you're really replacing the liver, you're not only treating the cancer, but you're sort of getting rid of the damaged organ because we like to think of cancer, you know, liver cancer in particular as, um, sort of a complication of a failing organ. That's really, I think, an uh, important perspective to have. Um, so it does not, yeah, it does not mean that you're not a candidate. It's actually one of the most curative therapies. And really currently in the United States, honestly, about a quarter of transplants are done for the indication of having liver cancer. Wow. So the other thing that we often think about when we think about transplant is the universal shortage of organs. Um, Liver is one of those nice organs that um, there is a potential for a living related donor. How often is that used in patients who have liver cancer? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Definitely. So the liver is just you know, one of one of the major reasons it's just one of the most remarkable organs is its ability to regenerate. So in certain patients, you are candidates for a living donor um, organ, meaning that a, a part of the liver is taken from a donor and put into the recipient, and it will actually grow to a normal size, usually in about 12 weeks time. Um, when we just you know, sort of determine if someone's a candidate for a living donor, there's a few factors that we have to take into account. Um, one is the size of the patient, because there's a certain sort of uh, mass of liver that you would need, you know, to, to sufficiently, um, you know, do its job in, in a person. So if you're a really, really big guy um, or a big girl, um, you know, your candidates might be limited. You would really need someone who is equally as tall or as large as you. Um, the second thing is if you're really incredibly sick. Um, and have a lot of complications from your liver disease, there's concern that you may not be able to tolerate just a piece of an organ. So it's it's actually something that we use quite often. Um, I think, you know, it's it varies based on programs and how large the programs are, but we definitely do a lot of living donors in our center here, and it's a really a great option for um, a certain subset of patients. And and so I tell us a little bit more about how that works, because I, I think that for many people, um, just the thought of having a relative or a loved one being diagnosed with a potentially treatable cancer, 
that you can help with, that you can um, help give them a new life it is really um, it is really awesome uh, in terms of the, the actual benefit that you can provide. But people may have some questions about that. Yes. So it's definitely um, a pretty, you know, somewhat grueling process to go through. And so kind of the way that it works is once we determine that someone is an eligible transplant candidate, um, they're then open to have either relatives or even we just sort of have altruistic donors that can call in and be screened to see if they're compatible. And you know, usually it starts with just looking at blood typing to see if there's a compatibility there. Um, rejection is a little bit different in the liver compared to other organs. So it's nice in that there's not such a, you know, so many factors that have to be, you know, directly matched to be considered a compatible donor. Um, but once we think that there's not going to be overt rejection and that really comes down a lot of times to compatibility and blood typing, we, you know, we have a very strict process to make sure that the donor itself is someone who would do very well going to surgery, that they have no underlying liver disease, and that ultimately we, you know, feel would essentially come out unscathed should they decide to go forth with donating their liver. Um, it's extremely rare in general to have any type of rejection from incompatibility just because our ability to screen and make sure that um, blood types and things match is, is so great now. So that's not generally a major, um, a major concern, but there's a lot of strict processes in terms of making sure the size is appropriate, that the recipient, you know, whatever portion was donated, that that would be enough for the patient not to have what we call post-operative um, liver failure or liver insufficiency. So uh, I would say technology and our screening strategies are just so remarkable now that those those factors are really very well detailed before we would proceed with any type of living donor uh, liver transplant. And then after the transplant, does the recipient stay on immunosuppressive therapy for life or how does that work? Yeah, so... Um, there's sort of variations in the quantity of immunosuppression in liver transplant recipients. Um, generally, within a year after transplant, you can get patients down to an extremely low level of immunosuppression, which again is slightly different than other organs where rejection rates are much higher. And it's interesting because there are certain um, reports of patients being able to completely come off of immunosuppression. Um, and we've actually had a few patients within our center that we've done that on. It's a little bit higher risk and it requires some more close monitoring. But I would say the vast majority of patients are usually um, on at least one medication for the duration of their life. But it's, again, incredibly low dose um, compared to the majority of other organ transplant recipients. And then are they, quote, cured? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's exactly the hope is that, um, you know, from liver transplant, you're essentially replacing the entire organ. Um, and so whatever the etiology of that patient's liver disease is, is essentially cured. Um, of course, there's a risk if patients redevelop viral infections, or if some of the risk factors that led initially to their liver disease are still present. And I think a lot in our population, um, the common things are patients who develop fatty liver disease, 
you know, in the post-transplant setting, if they, you know, continue to have diabetes or obesity, you can develop recurrent disease in the organ. But um, if patients mitigate their risk factors and go on to live a healthy life, then yes, liver transplant is curative, not only for the cancer, but again, for the initial cause of their cirrhosis. And so for patients who have liver cancer, is transplant one of the things that you think of first? Or do people have to kind of go through chemotherapy, at least an assessment of surgical resection and and so on, kind of the more um, commonplace cancer therapies before you think about transplant? Or is transplant something that is now first line? So it definitely is extremely independent on each patient's case. Um, you know, if we see a patient who has a single tumor that's very small in size and we think that we can cure them with a local resection, meaning just cutting out a portion of that liver, that's generally the first line therapy that we would actually go to. Um, in patients that have more advanced liver disease and other complications from their liver, if they develop a cancer on top of that, we know that a transplant would cure both of those aspects. So I would not say it's often first line, but it's a curative approach that we definitely have in the back of our heads for a subset of patients that would be good candidates. Terrific. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about liver cancer and transplant hepatology right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Ariel Jaffe. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5 to 10% of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages, multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Ariel Jaffe. We're talking about patients with liver cancer. And before the break, we talked about the whole aspect of transplant as a potential curative modality for patients with liver cancer. But Ariel, just as we were heading to the break, you mentioned that there are a lot of other things that go into thinking about liver cancer as well. So I wanted to take a step back and talk a little bit about, you know, how common is liver cancer anyways? You know, primary liver cancer is actually a, a quite significant global burden. There's over 800,000 new cases diagnosed each year. And actually, in the U.S. in particular, it's the fastest increasing cause of cancer and the fastest increasing cause of cancer-related death. So, 
you know, when we talk about primary liver cancer, we mean cancer that has originated and developed in the liver from the beginning. There are two main types that we think about. So hepatocellular carcinoma probably accounts for 80 to 90% of primary liver cancer. But another common type that we see that often develops in patients with chronic liver disease is something called cholangiocarcinoma, and that arises in the biliary cells. And these are the cells that kind of line all the little lakes and channels within the liver that sort of drain and modify the substance that the liver makes called bile. You know, when you think about secondary liver cancer, a lot of times what we're talking about is metastatic disease. So cancer that may have spread to the liver, um, but that's really treated and managed extremely differently than primary liver cancer. And so that's really fascinating. I, I didn't realize that liver cancer in the United States was the, the fastest growing in terms of incidence and mortality. Why is that? What are the risk factors that predispose to liver cancer that are, are factoring into this equation? Or is it the risk factors? Yeah, so there's definitely been a shift sort of in the risk factors globally where prior the major causes of liver disease used to really be chronic viral disease. And mainly we're talking about chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C. But with the ability to treat hepatitis C and control hepatitis B and even prevent that with vaccinations, um, really in the Western world, what we're seeing as the major cause of liver disease is definitely what we call fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And, you know, as we see a rise in the obesity epidemic, we're seeing more and more patients that develop complications such as diabetes, high cholesterol, um, you know, central adiposity, meaning just, you know, a lot of belly fat, which is inflammatory, bad fat that the body does not like, and um, high blood pressure, you know, as we're seeing more patients develop those complications, we're seeing a rise in the incidence of fatty liver disease. It is certainly true that there's just this exponential rise in obesity um, in America and in the world, quite frankly. So let me ask you this. Is it possible to reverse that? If you lose weight, do you reduce your risk of fatty liver and therefore reduce your risk of hepatocellular carcinoma? Absolutely. So, you know, generally when patients have developed cirrhosis, which is really advanced scarring within the liver, you know, we do say that you can't reverse completely to having, you know, a normal healthy liver. But for a lot of patients who are not quite yet cirrhotic or who may be cirrhotic but have active ongoing inflammation, which is a, you know, big risk factor for the development of cancer, you can absolutely reduce the risk of developing complications from liver disease and the development of liver cancer. So in particular for fatty liver disease, really the only kind of approved therapy at this time is the recommendation to lose weight. And generally we say five to 10% of weight loss has been associated with um, reduction in inflammation, reduction in scarring of the liver, and even reduction in the potential to develop liver cancer. And it's why we like to really tell patients that a lot of the risk factors to develop liver disease and liver cancer are really preventable. And so, you know, 
Ariel, you you see and treat patients with liver disease um, who may be at risk of developing liver cancer, and you also see patients who have developed liver cancer. You know, if you tell them to lose weight, that's often easier said than done. Um, are there any specific recommendations that you give patients? I, I'm just thinking that our listeners might be thinking, yeah, I'd love to lose 5 to 10% of my body weight. How exactly do I do that? Yeah, so it is it is definitely easier said than done. And I think especially in the COVID era where a lot of people were really sort of you know, confined to their home, it's been an even bigger challenge. So oftentimes what I say to patients is, you know, we kind of go through what they're eating and their physical activity. And sometimes their food choices may, they may think that they're eating healthy, but um, when we actually break down the calories or the amount of sugar they're eating, it's a lot more than they're aware of. So off the bat, I, I always offer patients to speak with nutrition because I think to have someone hold you accountable and really go through, you know, the target of each food group, um, you know, and macro and micronutrients you should be hitting is very helpful. We also have specific uh, fatty liver clinics and weight loss clinics here. So there are definitely patients that even if they're dieting or exercising, they're just really stuck in this challenging place and they can't get to an ideal body weight. And in that situation, there are medications that are available to sort of assist in weight loss. So we have a lot of programs and a lot of sort of, um, you know, ancillary help for patients that really struggle. All right. So the the news flash there is talk to your doctor because there likely is help available and um, we can we can all get through this and hopefully reduce our risk. But Ariel, I want to just kind of switch gears a little bit. Let's suppose it's a little too late and we develop liver cancer. How do you know a, that you have developed liver cancer. So how is that diagnosis made? Are you going to have signs and symptoms? Um, are you going to go yellow? Or is this something that, you know, is picked up incidentally? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, the majority of patients that develop liver cancer are really asymptomatic until it becomes very advanced. So at the time that someone may have pain or start to have you know, some vague symptoms like weight loss or significant fatigue or even um, jaundice or yellowing of the eyes, which suggests that there's either a blockage in the liver or that the tumor has spread so much in the liver that it's just kind of taken over any remaining normal tissue. That's often too late. So really what's incredibly important is to identify patients that have chronic liver disease or risk factors for liver cancer, um, some which include, you know, poorly controlled diabetes, heavy alcohol use, um, obesity, and make sure that we're screening those patients. So really all major societies recommend in patients with chronic liver disease that every six months you're actually screened for liver cancer with the hopes that if you develop a cancer, you can actually pick it up early. And it's an interesting because liver cancer is the only uh, solid organ tumor that could actually be diagnosed based on imaging alone. So it has very unique features um, when we do a CAT scan or an MRI that basically allow us to definitively tell if this is a hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and oftentimes we don't even have to do a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. So people who have those risk factors should have a CT or MRI every six months? 
So we always recommend an ultrasound. That's the first that's really the first step for screening. Okay. Um, and that's really just based on sort of cost effectiveness and, you know, the fact that it is fairly sensitive. But in some patients, if their liver is very scarred down, so you can't get a good look at the tissue, or if there's a lot of obesity, because a lot of fat in the belly can limit how, um, how good of a look you can get. In those cases, you may then need to do more advanced imaging. But generally, once we see something abnormal on an ultrasound, the next step is to do a cross-sectional scan with either a CT or an MRI. Okay. And so it's interesting that that liver cancers are one of the few where you don't need a biopsy to make that diagnosis. So let's suppose you you see that. Tell us about some of the, the medical management, some of the things that are coming down the pike short of transplant that might be helpful in these patients. Sure. So, you know, whenever someone has a new diagnosis of liver cancer, we always want to make sure that it hasn't spread outside the liver. So that's a big step because once it has spread, your treatment is a little bit different. And it's very important to look at a patient's underlying liver function because that plays a major role in understanding if they're eligible or would tolerate certain treatments. And outside of transplant, you know, we really do think of liver cancer treatment in either a curative approach or what's called a palliative approach. And transplant is one of the curative therapies, but other curative therapies include local resection. um, And that's just really when we cut out a small piece where that tumor is in. And of course, someone has to be a good candidate to undergo surgery. Um, And so if they have really advanced liver disease, that would not be a really an ideal treatment choice. Um, But other curative curative therapies include something called ablation, which is really where you destroy the tumor. Um, And that can be either through thermal techniques, uh, radiation techniques, um, electrical uh, injury. And then we think of some of our palliative treatments, which include um, what we sort of call local regional therapies or trans arterial therapies. And that's basically where you can either induce radiation damage or locally give chemotherapy uh, to the tumor to kind of cut off the blood supply and kill that tumor. And then for patients that either are just not responding to those or where the cancer has spread outside of the liver, we start to think about systemic therapy or chemotherapy. And so, you know, I can imagine that no patient wants to go through chemotherapy. Um, and and everybody has heard horror stories about what chemotherapy is like. But very often on this show, we've been talking about some of the newer advances, especially in systemic therapy, where we really are looking towards personalized medicine, sometimes immunotherapies. Is there anything like that going on in primary liver cancer? Absolutely. So I think probably the management for patients with liver cancer that's more advanced has been one of the most um, like one of the most innovative fields within within liver cancer. And that's because there have been so many new advancements um, in systemic therapies. So, you know, just a few even years ago, we just had a really one or two medications. And now we have 10 FDA approved therapies. And really as of May, 2020, so just a little bit over a year ago, 
a new combination therapy, which did, you know, it did include one of the components was an immune checkpoint inhibitor, which is one of our immunotherapy medications, actually proved to be uh, the best first-line therapy. So it had improvement in overall survival and disease-free progression compared to what our prior first-line was and is actually now what we try to use for our patients. Um, I think it's also important to know that oftentimes when our patients hear that they're going to go on systemic therapy or chemotherapy, they kind of think of, um, you know, the movies or loved ones that they've seen who have gotten really very sick or their hair has fallen out or their immune system is completely wiped out. And the medications that we use to treat liver cancer um, are definitely much more tolerable with, you know, significantly reduced side effects compared to, I think, what a lot of patients think about uh, for sort of standard chemotherapy for other tumors. Dr. Ariel Jaffe is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of digestive diseases at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.